just keep doing what makes you happy. Finding the things that you get satisfaction with that make you feel good, that give you happiness is really what you should be doing, not solving for success or money or achievement. But the more you are able to do things that bring you happiness, the better you'll be at them. Those other things will naturally come. But if you're able to really find in yourself the things that make you happy and do those things, then I think you'll be far better off. For me, it's continuing to play sports every day. It's being curious about the way the world works and meeting interesting people. Those are the things that make me happy. I try to do them every day. It's the things that I get the most satisfaction from. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Anouk Patty, my guest today on the Sidcast, has done it all. She grew up skiing, father actually brought Rosignol, the great French ski company, to the U.S. And believe it or not, at the age of 14, she was actually competing as part of the U.S. ski team. Skiing and sports have been part of her life, her entire life. But conversation with Anouk is a conversation with someone that has played at a very high level, both in business, in technology. She worked for Dropbox, worked for HP for a number of years in a lot of outreach and strategic development types of positions. But in the early part of her career, as a teenager, really, she was a ski racer and she was good. But at some point she realized she wasn't going to be the best. And that slowly started to change her focus. I always wonder about that. I mean, think about how hard it is to be the best at anything. There's really only one person at any point in time that's the best. For example, in the Olympics, there's only one gold medal winner in every competition. And that person is the best in the world at that particular time, at that particular stage. And being second or third, well, that's pretty good. Being 10th or 100th, that's actually kind of amazing. But it's really hard to be one of the best. And what makes people get that drive? We also talked about Michaela Schifrin, the great U.S. ski racer, maybe one of the greatest ever, who had a very difficult and unsuccessful Olympics in 2022, but still has an unbelievable record. We talked about the mindset, the mind of the athlete and what it takes to be successful. What I like about Anouk, well, I like a lot of things about Anouk. She's so very personable. She's honest. She's upfront. She's unafraid to share her personal life and what she learned. I mean, she was married. She has kids. But she also came out as gay and she was in her 40s at the time. That could not have been a simple and easy thing to do. And so she has a lot of courage as well. She got an MBA at Harvard Business School. She went to Dartmouth College. She's done a lot of pretty amazing things in her career because of her business background as well, I think, has so many interesting things to share about competition, about people, about life, about careers, about sports, to be sure. When I talked to her not that long ago, she was at Hewlett Packard in a senior strategy development position. But in April of this year, she took on a new job as chief of sport at the U.S. ski and snowboard team, which is really her deep passion. When you listen to our conversation, keep in mind that when we were talking, she did not get this job as chief of sport at the U.S. ski and snowboard team. But you could just see, you could just feel that passion, that energy, kind of like the true love being all about sports. And that she ended up pivoting or moving to that job not long after our conversation is really kind of interesting. So there's a lot to talk about. I really love guests like this on the Sidcast. I feel very fortunate to be able to talk to people that have excelled in multiple arenas and just really, really good people that we all could learn from. And that's who our guest is today, Anouk Patty. Welcome to the Sidcast. Sid Finkelstein here. This is like really exciting for me to talk to Anouk Patty. Hi, Anouk. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's great to have you. You have such an interesting background, You've done so many interesting things. When you wrote me a little note with some background information, the things you said are things I like to think I say about myself or others, but myself, but intellectually curious and always wondering and always questioning, wanting to try a lot of things. And you've done that. So there's so many things to talk about. But I want to start with skiing because you grew up, of course, around skiing. Your father brought Rosignol, the French ski company, to the U.S. And I guess that's how you ended up in Vermont. 
But at the age of 14, you were on the U.S. ski team. Is that right? That's right. So I was actually born in France. And as you said, my parents came to the U.S. My mother's Australian and my father's French. Dad had actually coached for the French ski team. He was one of Jean-Claude Killy's coaches in 68. I was just going to ask you if you knew Jean-Claude Killy. So I'll tell you something. 1968, that was the Olympics where he won the gold medal, at least one gold medal. Maybe. In Grenoble. In Grenoble. That's right. He won all of them. I think that was also the year that Nancy Green, does that sound? Uh-huh. Yep. The Canadian? The Canadian, because I'm Canadian. Uh-huh. And she won a gold medal. And I remember my brother, my older brother, Simon, is fanatical about the Olympics. He loves the Olympics. And I remember how excited he was. That got me going, too. She really moved the Canadians onto the map for ski racing, no doubt. She was a hero to a lot of Americans as well. But yeah, and then we moved to Vermont because dad, as you said, set up Rossignol and set up the warehouse in Burlington. And so I grew up in a small ski area called Sugarbush, Vermont. My mom had and still has a ski shop there. She's had it for 40 years. And I grew up every day going up to the ski area and I'd either go alpine skiing or cross-country skiing and started racing when I was about seven or eight and just loved it. I loved being out there with my friends and playing in the snow and got to be pretty good pretty quickly, although I don't think I really realized it at the time. I was just doing what I loved. Mm-hmm. Having won a few races, I was invited to a camp with the U.S. ski team in Bend, Oregon, which is where I went to. And that sort of put me on the track to be on the team and then traveling with the team. And really at the age of 14, I was gone from home for about close to nine months of the year. I mean, I really just stepped into this life that was completely different to most 14-year-olds, certainly my friends at the time. It was a lot of fun, a lot of adventure, but it was hard. It's a difficult life for a kid. Yeah. Were one of your parents with you? No, no. It was you? Yeah. And a lot of us like to say that The U.S. ski team, in a way, kind of raised us because the coaches that were there and the ski technicians and the older athletes who served as mentors. I was 14, 15 at the time, and I was on the team with some women who were, I think Cindy Nelson at the time, I remember riding up the chair with her. Mm -hmm. And she looked at me and she said, how old are you? And I said, well, I was 15 at the time. And she's like, my God, you're literally half my age. She was 30 at the time. And so you had athletes that were spanning a wide age difference, and they really took care of us. Now, my parents, they would come watch, but they didn't travel. Do you go to school when you're part of the ski team racing around the world? You try to, but it's kind of tough. Most athletes at that level, at least ski racers, go to a ski academy. And there are three of them in Vermont, or three of the big ones, Green Mountain Valley Schools, the one I went to, Burke Mountain Academy, Stratton. Mm -hmm. And then now there are some on the West Coast as well. There's one up here in California that has done really well. So you really have to go to a program like that that is set up to support an athlete who's traveling. We were the first ones that really did remote learning. That was 30 years ago, but it was set up so that when you came home, you could really dive into your studies. But when you away, the curriculum was set so that it supported you kind of being on your own. Right. Very interesting. Just as a side note, so you mentioned you're on the chairlift with someone who's double your age. When do skiers, downhill skiers, peak? In general, is there an age range when that happens? Because I think it's very unusual to be a world champion when you're, I don't know, 20 or 22 or something like that. Well, I think it's changed a little bit. I think back in my day, if you hadn't done something really epic by the time you were 18, 19, then you sort of wanted to move on and do something different. I think now there's a little bit more understanding that particularly women, female athletes, takes a little bit more time to physically mature and understand where you're at in the sport and develop. And so now I think it's a little bit, I'd say it's later, it's probably mid-20s, particularly downhill, which is a sport that is all about speed and getting to understand and know the terrain and the different courses out there. But you get a lot of injuries. I mean, this year, as an example, the top two athletes had some challenges, some pretty big injuries. Yeah, well, I remember Lindsey Vaughn would have multiple injuries. You'd hear about it every second or third season. She was one of the greatest, if not the greatest. That's right. American skier. You said that it's an incredible life to be doing what you were doing, but it's much more difficult than people realize. So what did you mean by that? The travel is very intense. I have traveled a lot for work, but it's a completely different scale when you're traveling as an athlete and the amount of gear you have to take and the focus you have to have, 
day in and day out. It's not matched in anything else that you do. You also have just the elements in this sport are really tough. It's a pretty brutal sport. You're out in the cold. It's freezing. You have to go whether it's, we all love Mm. to ski on a bluebird day, but the reality is you just don't have those all the time. So whether it's raining or cold or whatever it is, you have to be out there. They're long days. The injuries, as, as you mentioned, are they're real and I think almost all of my friends have had broken legs, torn ACLs, torn MCLs. Like the injury rate is astronomical and having to come back from that year in, year out is difficult. And it's lonely at times as well, because while it's a team sport, you're really competing as an individual. And so Mm -hmm. it's not as though you're traveling with your soccer team or your football team and everybody's there working together. Like you really are on your own. It is difficult. It's magical at the same time as well. But it's a tough sport, for sure. You know, when you mention broken legs and ACL tears and other things like that, these are big injuries with long recoveries. Is this right, what we're doing, putting young athletes into a sport where to win, to compete at a global level, you really have to do things to your body that are extremely high risk and that there's almost no way around it because you're pushing yourself to the absolute limit. I mean, maybe it's a philosophical question more than anything else. But I mean, as you're saying that, it makes me think, well, there's a lot of controversy about professional football, American football, and how many injuries and brain injuries, concussions people get and how brutal the sport is. And many people don't want their kids to be playing football because of that. So you just kind of made me think about that in the context of skiing. What's your take on that? It's a good question. I think in skiing, the athletes themselves will always push Whatever limit is set, they'll try to push farther than that. It's just the nature of downhill ski racers is they always want to go faster. And that is what motivates them. That's why they're there. And so the limits that are set really are for them to sort of always try to surpass. And I Mm -hmm. I don't think any World Cup or Olympic downhill athlete would ever say that they're put in a place because someone else put them there. They're there because they want to be there. Now, I have been in the starting gate of certainly World Cup races where I have to say I was terrified. Mm. It was foggy. It was icy. Can't see anything. And there have been times where as athletes, we thought, you know, maybe this isn't the safest thing to race today. And that's up to what's called the FIS, which is the international governing body to make a call on that particular day and that particular race. But on the whole, I think I would not say we're putting our athletes into precarious positions. They're there because they want to be there and they're passionate about speed and they're always looking for more speed. But it is something that we should watch because this year in particular on the women's side, there have been a number of extraordinary injuries that happened and that has to be taken into account. So if that continues, then I think we should take a closer look at it. I think I read somewhere, and this is not specific to skiing, but through soccer, maybe some other sports as well, High school girls in particular, there's a tremendous number of people, number of kids that are getting torn ACLs from soccer and other sports. And one of the reasons for this, I think, and this is not me analyzing as much as recalling what experts were saying about it is, that to be great at any sport, you're starting really young, younger maybe than ever before. And you're single-mindedly, you're focusing on that sport and not doing three or four or five other things that maybe the typical kid who's really good at sports would want to do all kinds of things. But you can't do that if you start to move up. you got to be completely dedicated to it. That is very true. And when I was ski racing, that single-minded focus is definitely a quality that the top racers in the world had. I don't think I had that. I think that was one of the things that held me back, was one of the reasons, in fact, why I had deferred to go to Dartmouth and I then decided, no, I really want to go to Dartmouth. And then when I was at Dartmouth, I played three sports. So I was kind of finally freed from having to have that sort of single-minded view. And then I played tennis and rugby and skied. But yeah, that is very real. Where does that focus, that single-minded focus come from? Are people born that way? Can you train people? It's some combination, no doubt. But what do you think? You've seen it. I think a lot of them are born that way. You know, you see it in business now with entrepreneurs who just have this single-minded focus, willing to do whatever it takes, including never sleep, Mm -hmm. put all of their investments into ideas that they have and just stay with it. And this conviction that what they're doing is the right thing and they're going to succeed and not be swayed by anybody else's opinion or outside factors or metrics and just keep going. And you have it in athletes and you have it in business as well. This is really interesting because it's the question about pure dedication. Is that the differentiator between an excellent skier and a world champion? When you think about, say, sport, 
individual sport and you brought up entrepreneurship. To be a successful entrepreneur, you could be the most dedicated person in the world, but there's a lot of other things you need. There's a lot of other people you need and circumstances, not just people. And maybe that's true in sports as well, but it seems like there's not as many extraneous factors at the top level in sports. So I'm surmising here, but I'm very curious because you've obviously had, and we'll talk about your business career at a high level, as well as earlier in your life as a skier. And so I'm curious about the analogy between entrepreneurship and athletics at a very high level. I do think athletics at a very high level, when you're looking at a World Cup ski race, every single one of those athletes is incredibly dedicated. And even at the next level below that, they're all really, really dedicated. So everyone's in the weight room, everyone's doing their workouts, everyone's focused. But the things that differentiate the top five athletes from the rest, or even the top one athlete from all the rest, it is a combination of factors. And quite honestly, some of it comes down to luck. You may have one of the best athletes out there who gets injured and they're Mm -hmm. out. That's kind of bad luck. And so I do think at that level, everybody's working hard. Everyone's committed. Everyone's disciplined. You do have some that may just have a little bit more athletic talent. Those who maybe don't have as much will make up for that in other ways. But I do think there are factors that you have to keep at play and keep them all going. And particularly with athletes right now in the year of COVID or the last two years we've had, that's a whole other element where you have athletes that test positive and then they just can't race for two weeks or whatever the time is. Mm -hmm. But it's a whole other variable that has come in that they've had to adapt to. Athletes are so focused on their bodies. And I think there's been a huge growth of knowledge and understanding of nutrition and lifestyle. Certainly you see it even in professional sports. We're a long way from the old stories about Babe Ruth carousing all night long and then coming back and hitting you know all those home runs. You have someone like Tom Brady that is ultra fanatic. Of course, he's once in a maybe more than a generation. But I think the understanding of being healthy and nutrition and living well is generally understood. Not that everyone necessarily will do that, but I think the best do that. And so maybe this is behind... Novak Djokovic's controversy, you know, back in the Australian Open and continuing on not wanting to be vaccinated, that maybe he thought there's something about that that could potentially affect his system. I don't know. And I know you can't really comment specifically on that unless you know him and talk to him. But what do you think about that? Because I don't think there's any excuse not to get vaccinated. I'm biased and this is going to get me some hate mail by saying that. But regardless. The first thing I have to say is I think most athletes at some point in the year would all night out of the town like Babe Ruth. (laughs) And that there's something really appealing about being able to just let loose on occasion. Mm. But you can't. And that's the challenge. I think in the case of Djokovic, I mean, of course, I very much believe everybody out there should be getting vaccinated as well. And I'll take the hate mail. But I think Djokovic really fundamentally believed in himself and what he was doing was the right thing. That is very common with athletes that they're very stubborn. And back to our earlier comment, they can be hard to sway. They have a conviction. They have a path forward that they've defined for themselves. And it's hard to move them off of that. I don't agree with what he did, but I think that is what has guided him. So back to world class skiers and the best of the skiers. So Michaela Schifrin is in that category for the last several years. What makes Michaela Schifrin, Michaela Schifrin, why has she been so successful? Why is she potentially has a chance to be the greatest female skier ever, which is kind of a heck of a statement. (laughs) I, as probably everybody else, have been a huge Michaela Schifrin fan. I think when we look at success, though, for her, it's two things. One is her results in racing, for sure, is Mm -hmm. one of the best. But also, commercially, she's been a huge success. When alpine skiers or cross-country skiers or snowboarders are super successful, it's not necessarily guaranteed that they will have the commercial success just because these sports are not like football or baseball or basketball. And the athletes don't have as much exposure and opportunity to transfer that that um, success on the hill into dollars. But Michaela has. And so her results that she's had, I think, come from really, really focused effort that she and her team have put in over the years. There's no margin for error in what Michaela Schifrin does. Everything is planned. Everything is laid out. And that works for her. I think she even would say she's dating a Norwegian who's also one of the best in the world right now. And he is not quite so structured and disciplined in everything being laid out. And so just because one thing works for her doesn't mean that it would work for all other athletes. She's had her mother by her side. She also went to a ski academy as I did at Burke. 
Her mother lived there. That's not necessarily a model that I would recommend or would work for a lot of athletes. But what she did, she did because she knew it worked for her and it was a Mm -hmm. whole package. I would say she is naturally just unbelievably talented. I think the results have been largely because of that. Commercially, she is charismatic. She has amazing presence. She's very, very kind and sweet and does not have a big ego. She's very approachable. And it's nice to see athletes like that. And companies like Adidas really gravitate that and want her as their spokesperson because what she says is impressive and people like to hear it. At the Tuck School and the Business School, we have a program called Next Step. I don't know if you've heard about it yet. Next Step is military veterans and Olympic athletes who are or have stepped down. Their needs are a little bit different, but there's some similarities across these groups through dedication. But the issue of building a brand and trying to get that commercial success that you're mentioning is front and center for a lot of the Olympic athletes. And they're all very smart and dedicated. They know what it's like to work hard, but not all of them know anything about business, to be sure. And so it's really interesting to see. And I've been fortunate to do a usually a half day with them when they're here. To me, it's inspiring. I love hanging out with people that are trying to be the best in the world at something. There's only one number one at any point in time. So most people are not going to hit that. But that doesn't mean you can't try for it. I love that. The Next Step program, I am familiar with it. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I know a number of skiers have gone through it. And we talked about these athletes that are single-mindedly focused on skiing. For any athlete, it's difficult to then make that transition into the real world, particularly for those who are coming at it a little bit later because they've taken more time and continued to compete. When I was racing, I had that sort of, do I keep racing? Do I go to college? What should I do? It was hard. It's a hard decision. And there wasn't this transition like a next step that was there that would allow athletes to continue to do what they love and what they're really good at, but have the comfort that when I'm done, there's something that will help me go into the next realm of what I want to do. So I think it's really fantastic that Dartmouth is doing that. So your own transition going to college, and this is interesting, your first job out of college was in banking. Right. I think it was J.P. Morgan. That is not the natural career path most people would think of. How does a ski racer end up working for a Wall Street bank? Well, I was an econ major at Dartmouth, and so I'd taken a few classes on bond pricing, equity pricing. So I had some sort of understanding of what it was. Both my parents were in the ski industry. I didn't have any family members who had anything to do with banking. So I didn't get a lot of exposure to it that way. And my summer internships at Dartmouth, I had done in sports marketing because I just thought, well, I love sports. And so when I stopped being an athlete, I probably want to go to sports marketing. And I worked for IMG in France, who was helping to set up and organize the 92 Olympics in Alberville. And I helped to bring in some of the sponsors like Visa and General Motors and Mm Coca-Cola, the big sponsors of the Olympics. And then I did another internship in Paris, also with a sports marketing company, where we had the biggest soccer player at the time, who was Jean-Pierre Papin. And after those two internships, I pretty clearly realized I did not want to go into sports marketing. I think it was a difficult step to go from being an athlete to then being an athlete agent. And I just wasn't really ready to do that. And I wanted to try to do something different. And at Dartmouth senior year, I think now it's maybe a little bit earlier, but senior year, everybody starts doing this corporate recruiting and everyone's wearing suits, walking around campus and meeting all these different banks and consulting firms. I think there was one tech firm and that was Apple. And so I thought, well, I'll try that. And in the process of doing the interviews, I kind of liked the intensity. I kind of liked a little bit of the competitiveness of the whole process Mm -hmm. and thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And then I had had a couple of older mentors who had been on the ski team and had also gone to Dartmouth and then were working in New York. And so talking to them about what they were doing each day, I thought, well, this seems interesting. And so I got a job at J.P. Morgan and, and went to New York. What was it like in those early years in particular? So it's not that you were a ski racer and then got plunked down into Wall Street. You had studied economics. You've done a lot of due diligence. So it's not that much of a stretch, but you didn't have the typical background in the sense that there are probably not too many other world-class ski racers floating around or world-class athletes. You wouldn't be the only one, but there wouldn't be a lot. And so the question really is, does anyone care? Did it make a difference, positively or negatively, your own background as an athlete and maybe not someone who may have had a slightly more traditional trajectory to a Wall Street job? There were times where it was positive and times where it was negative. When I actually was trying to get the job and going through recruiting, Mm -hmm. I had a number of different firms say to me, well, 
you should just go back into sports. Like, clearly, that's what you love. And I was like, yeah, that's what I love, but that's not what I want to do. And so it took a little time to convince companies that, no, I did really want to go work in New York. And then once I was there, it was all positive. People, I think, like athletes, people gravitate to it, particularly in New York. A lot of people ski, so they like hearing the stories and understanding it. I do think a lot of them were somewhat delusional about what my life had been like, thinking I was traveling from Kitzbühel to Cortina every day and every weekend and having this grand, wonderful life. And as we talked about earlier, I was like, well, it was actually very difficult. But I think people gave me a little bit more respect out of the gate just because they knew that I had been this world-class athlete. And they liked that. And it was different. Well, I know that competitiveness and people that have that from not necessarily where you were, but at any level, these are people that are attractive for many to hire. I know in my own research on what some of the best leaders in the world look for, competitiveness is almost always in the shortlist. So in that respect, it's not that surprising. What did you actually do then? What was your job? I was at JP Morgan for four years. The first area that I was in was in mergers and acquisitions, and I was in the basic industries group. So really hardcore Americana, cement building, flat glass, construction, car companies, all of these types of areas, as we call the basic industries, buying and selling companies. When you start at JP Morgan and you start as an analyst, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. So you do whatever is needed, <laughs> essentially. But I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. It gave me unbelievable quantitative skills that I've taken with me in all my other different business ventures. But it gives you an understanding of numbers that is hard to surpass, really. I think it's a great experience for anybody coming out of college. I'm interested because you brought up this point about kind of analytical skills and understanding the numbers, which has been useful, very useful for a lot of other things you ended up doing. What about from your life as a ski racer? We talked about competitiveness, but I'm interested in, I don't know if we want to call it skills or capabilities and the transferability of those across different career tracks, which is a very big and relevant topic for a lot of people because most people who are listening have or will have multiple careers, and they're not all going to be in a straight line. In fact, it would be odd if they were in a straight line. And the question is, what skills are more transferable than others? And if they are more transferable, maybe those are things that people, especially early in their career, should be working on because they're going to have a longer payoff over the course of their career. I think there's the classic, probably two, that everybody thinks about and talks about, which is commitment and discipline. Uh, that ability to stay focused, work hard, and get the job done. And those are ones that we all talk about as, well, we've been an athlete, we know how to day in and day out, do what you need to do to be successful, then you take that into business. But for me, I think the one that I would add that maybe we don't talk about quite as much is the ability to take feedback and then actually act on that. Because as an athlete, I would, as a skier, be going down the run, my coach would watch, and then I'd go up at the chair and he'd yell to me feedback, you need to work on this, work on that. I'd do it again, i get the feedback again. And so that process of performing and then getting the immediate feedback, and it wasn't always pretty, the feedback mm -hmm. for sure, mm -hmm. but acting on that immediately and trying constantly to be better and better and better and not taking it personally, not getting emotional about the feedback, but recognizing that is the tool to get better. Taking that approach into the business world, I think, is what can really differentiate athletes is always wanting to learn, always wanting to get better and wanting the feedback on how to do that. I see a lot of people, they get feedback and they get so upset and they take it so personally. And for me, it's like, no, that's how you're going to get better. Mm -hmm. That is really the big ticket item that differentiates athletes. I agree. I talk a lot about feedback in different seminars and workshops that I do. And most people nod their heads. They get it. But actually, when the pressure is up and some of that feedback is not so pretty, as you just said, how are you going to react to that? And I think if your goal is truly to be the best you possibly can or to learn as much as you can, whatever the area is, then why wouldn't you want the feedback? Now, there are some people that are not particularly adept at providing that feedback, but you got to cut through that. And I saw what you're describing in a very different field years ago in ballet. I spent a few days with the Memphis Ballet watching their training and their practice. And the level of the feedback the choreographer provided to the dancers was real time in the instant where there was a chance to fix it or learn how to do it better or differently right away. There wasn't a long pause in between, but it was extremely direct and was extensive and was accepted, not just accepted. It was exactly what they wanted. 
It's a very different mindset to how most people think about feedback. And then you have so many companies that do this annual feedback thing at the end of the year, which is completely ridiculous, I think, where it's so far removed from the actual action. Who's going to even remember the connection? So I think this is a real opportunity for people to go out of their way to seek feedback if it's not there on a day-to-day or as close to -to day-to-day basis as you can. I, too, think the annual feedback process, because now in corporate America for quite some time and have had to be a part of it on both sides, and it's just sort of silly. And so I have always tried to ask for the feedback when I'm working with different people. I see a lot of really senior leaders think that because they're so senior, they're exempt from this feedback process. But in reality, really good, really strong leaders, I think, really ask for the feedback and take it to heart and act on it. And I think that is one thing that when you do get to the senior level, does differentiate a good leader from one who is sort of going along the process. And I think the example of the athlete or the ballet dancer, that example is one I think as educators, we should talk about it even more because there's just an endless desire to get better. And that's in your interest more than anybody else's interest. So why not do that? You end up going to business school and then you start a new career in consulting, which is of course a classic post-MBA career track. Did you like it and why did you leave? I did really like Bain. I worked in San Francisco. I'd worked there between my first and second year at Harvard. And I loved San Francisco. I loved the office that was there. I thought the people were great. It's a bit like going back to college, Mm -hmm. (laughs) doing a summer internship there. The projects that I had, at least in the beginning, were great. At the time, we had an LBO practice, so I was helping one of our private equity firms look at some investment options that they could pursue. I worked with some medical device companies and helping them do some integration work. And then I did some strategy work for a big computer company. But then I got put on a project which was all about cost cutting. And it actually was with PacBell, who was the phone company here. And it was brutal. I just felt like I spent four months going in and telling them which divisions to cut, which people to cut. I was part of a team, but it just was this cutting and slashing and getting rid of everything. And this was in 1998 and everybody was starting to talk about this tech industry that was growing. And I had friends who were moving into tech and I thought, I'm tired of getting rid of things and cutting things. I want to go somewhere where I could build something and Mm -hmm. help to build something that's going to be really successful. And so then I made the decision to go to Intuit after that. I did really like consulting. Similar to banking, I would recommend it to anybody coming out of either undergrad or business school because I think it gives you just incredible skill set, the way to think about business problems, frameworks to use, great slide making capabilities, which (laughs) reality is those are good to have. But I didn't stay there super long. I think I was there a year and a half and then I moved down. What point did you kind of step aside and you wanted to be more of a, I don't know, full-time mom for a period of time. So then I was at Intuit and I was at Intuit for about eight years. And that time I'd gotten married and I was the GM of the Quicken and QuickBooks for the Mac business, which I had built and started. I'd done a deal with Apple. So I built this business that was going pretty well. But I had two little kids that were three and five at the time. And Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about balancing work life these days and how to make it all work. But there's just a reality that it's really hard. It's hard to be running a business, a mom of two kids. I still like to play sports and work out every day. And it's just hard to get it all done. And so I decided that I'd been going, you know, really hard for quite a number of years and thought maybe now is the time for me to just sort of step off this treadmill for a little bit and be a mom. And I had only planned on staying home for about a year, maybe not even that. And it was a difficult decision, I have to say. It was similar to when I had made the decision to leave the U.S. ski team and go to college. When you make these big life-changing shifts, you feel like, oh God, what am I letting go? And what am I giving up? Will I ever be able to find this sense of reward and satisfaction again? And you just have to hope and know that you will, but it's a leap of faith. So how long did you actually, uh, were you actually away from full-time work at that time? It was about three, a little over three years. So I think that time, as you have described, was pretty powerful because sometime around there, I'm not sure if I have the exact right time period, you ended up divorcing and you came out as gay. That's right. Yeah. What was that like? You already had an established business career. You were married. You had kids. Could you share a little bit about what was going on in your mind and that process? Yeah, I'd like to say that it was a piece of cake and rosy (laughs) roses and all that. But the reality is it was hard. I mean, it was really, really hard. It was the first time in my life where I had stepped off that treadmill and really had time to think and reflect on who I was and what I wanted in life and 
not necessarily doing things for others, but really doing them for myself. And I had grown up in Vermont, which I think is still the whitest state in the nation. There's just no diversity there. I had ski raced, which is traditionally not exactly the most diverse sport either. I had gone to Dartmouth, which when I was at Dartmouth, it was quite conservative. I think today it's very different, but it was quite conservative. And then I'd gone to New York and worked on Wall Street. Even when I went to Harvard, it was pretty conservative. So I think I'd always been in this position where like I had to be really good and I had to try to be the best and I had to sort of keep myself in this elevated stature. And being gay just was not cool. That was not a part of it. It was a very different world 30 years ago to what it is today. But I never had the opportunities to even think about that because it really was not okay. When I took time off, I think partly being in California, which it is really important to be in places where people are accepted and diversity is an integral part of our culture, both at a state level, but certainly on a local community level. And I had friends then who were gay and I started to think, I mean, obviously deep down I had thoughts about this and I was questioning it. It was in 2008 when Prop 8 was at the forefront of California politics. And I realized I'm way more moved by this than (laughs) my straight friends seem to be. People have asked me, like, how did you know? And it's not like I had one morning where I woke up and was like, oh, wow, I'm gay. It was a process that took some time. It was a lot of long runs up in the mountains and thinking through things and coming to terms with it because I felt an enormous amount of shame and I think guilt at not being true to myself, recognizing if I was going to go through with this, I was going to have to get divorced. I was going to change my whole family. And so that was a whole additional layer that came into play that made it all much more difficult. But when I did come out and I told my friends The classic response that pretty much all of them had was, yeah, we already knew. (laughs) And I was like, God, (laughs) you know, I wanted to say, well, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? Exactly. What would that have done? Really? Not probably not that much. So I'm still very good friends with my ex. We have two great kids together and co-parent. So we made it through. Thanks for sharing that story and your own process. I can't help but think that if you were growing up 30 years later, it may not have been to this stage of your life where you end up coming out because you kind of knew, but it was, as you said at that time, well, this is your perception of it, of course, that it was not cool because there were many other people that come out as gay, but I think it's not quite what it is today in our modern 2022, at least in some parts of the country, let's just say. There were some. I think Martina Navratilova was the big one that we saw, but there were not a lot. My early foundations, as I said earlier, the U.S. ski team in a way raised a lot of us. At that time, it really was not okay. There were a few athletes that were dating and they literally were told by the coaches, knock it off or you're going to be sent home. So that was kind of ingrained in me. Now, I will say, because I'm very close to the team now, that has really, really changed. So I think at the time it was fundamentally different. Today, I've spoken at a number of high schools here in the Bay Area and talked about the coming out process, what it's like and what it was meant to me. But I'm so impressed and inspired by so many of these younger kids who coming out and understand the reality of we're all different and different is good and being comfortable with who they are and understanding that their sexuality is a part of who they are and being comfortable with that. Do you think that the fact that you identify your identity is as a gay woman, that that's had an impact on how you've been a leader, how you've done your work either maybe before you came out or after or both, maybe all along? Yeah, it has in two ways. One, in that I feel personally now much more confident and comfortable in who I am. And so when I lead, I know that the way I'm going and the way I'm handling things, I feel good about it. If I feel good about myself, Mm -hmm. I'm much more able to lead and help people to feel good about what they're doing. But then the second part, I think, is that we all talk about DEI right now. Every company has a DEI initiative and it's very important. But I live and breathe DEI. (laughs) I am DEI. And so when I hire and when I bring my teams together and I just naturally am inclusive and think about diversity, it's a natural part of who I am. So I applaud all the companies that are focused on DEI because I think it's fantastic and it's critical. It is a little easier when you already are gay, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. I'm just thinking about how many other things I want to talk to you about. This is what happens when you have a good conversation. But let me jump to, so you went back to work after taking this time off, and this was a very powerful time off, to be sure. I think you went to HP to do strategic partnerships, and you did that for a number of years. Let's go back to the transferability of skills question. You came from banking, from consulting, from world-class athletics. What parts of that past experience 
most important in helping you do this new job. At Intuit, you probably did a little bit of that, but I think this was 100% focused on strategic partnerships. What skills were the most transferable across these career tracks? I think one of the things that is great about doing early training programs like banking or consulting or doing jobs early on where you're thrown into a situation where you know absolutely nothing and you have to figure out what's up, what's down, what the key levers are strategically, where does this fit relative to other areas we could be focused on. Learning how to do that and feeling comfortable and confident that you can throw anything at me and I'll figure it out. That, I think, is a skill set that you can get early on. And I did in both banking and consulting because I was constantly moving from one industry into the next. Mm -hmm. Then when I joined into it, I came into the mortgage business. I knew nothing about mortgages. And so then being able to go to HP and again, that wanting to learn, wanting to absorb as much as I could, but knowing that I would go up a pretty steep ramp and the learning curve for me, I would make it steep so that I could get up to speed very quickly, I think is what got me to be successful there. Did you feel any, did you have any pushback, reaction, any issues because you were on a mommy track, if you will, for a period of time? I think for me, what was interesting is I was a GM at Intuit. I was running a business. For me, the next logical step in that career trajectory was to then take on a bigger business and run a bigger business. And that is what I was speaking to. I reported to the CTO at the time we were discussing is that would be the next thing. So when I decided, no, I want to take time off and be a mom, I had to step off that trajectory. Mm -hmm. When I wanted to go back three years, just the reality is you can't step back onto that. You can't just go back and say, okay, my kids are great. Now I want to come back and run the $150 million business that we were talking about. It would be great if it were the fact, but it just isn't. And so what I wanted to do was find places where I could come in and very quickly be successful, make a difference at the company and go up the career track rather fast. And so partnerships was an area, particularly because I'd already done M&A. So I kind of knew the contracts deal making side of the work. But it was an area where I could make a big difference and be successful very quickly. When I was at J.P. Morgan, I saw there's a difference between the trading side of the house and the investment banking side of the house. And traders operate pretty much individually. They operate on their own. It's not really a team environment. And they are very well rewarded for making big trades. And they're not really responsible for building culture or anything else like that. They're just responsible for bringing in big trades. And so partnerships can be a little analogous because you come in and as an individual, you can make a huge difference and you can be well compensated. So it was an area that I thought would make a logical step. Admittedly, though, when I came into HP, just the whole hiring process, like I had to make sure that I found somebody who was willing to understand that being a mom is also important. And I had a manager who absolutely understood that. And so he was like, great. He had no problem bringing me in. I think in today's world, particularly in tech, it's much more common. And I think this is 15 years later now. So I think it is something where women are taking more time off to be with their kids and then coming back into the workforce. And that trajectory is a little bit closer to what it was when they stepped off. You know, there's a company called Relaunch. It was founded by Carol Fishman Cohen, who's lived this. And it's actually gotten quite a lot of traction. I did a podcast with her back in October of last year. And she helps companies create programs to recruit, identify, hire, mostly women, but not only, who have decided to go on a mommy track anywhere from two to 10 years and have law degrees, MBAs, or just lots of high-level experience, real talent. Turns out that it's not that easy to just jump back in in the way that you just described. But there are companies that are saying this is a tremendous talent pool, especially as we think about the age that we're in, where people used to talk about the war for talent. It's not the right word at all. I think this is like the greatest era we've seen. If you have talent, it's a great time to be around because of the disruptions that have happened and what the upside is for talented people. Carol Fishman Cohen's created this relaunch group and dealing with and helping people prepare for their relaunch back into their careers, but also helping companies get into and learn how to get into this talent pool. It's pretty cool. I think it's a huge opportunity. I have so many friends, female friends, women friends from both Dartmouth and Harvard who are not working because it just got to be too difficult. They stopped, they wanted to be a mom, and it just got to be too difficult to come back in and work. It's not easy to find something that meets their needs in terms of a little bit more flexible hours and it's all full-time, go hard. But I think now things are changing, particularly as we have more of a hybrid world that's emerging in the workspace. We have more virtual first type companies where you can work from home and work online. I am hopeful and optimistic that this will change because in my view, there are so many extraordinarily talented 
bright women that are not a part of the work pool, the talent pool that should be. I've written about untapped talent pools, and this happens to be one of the most promising of all. I mean, it's always been around, but I think we're a different place. So that's interesting to hear. A couple of years ago, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I don't know if you know Kikan Randall. You probably do. Nordic Olympic gold medalist who also has had to deal with breast cancer. I did a podcast with her and I met her through Next Step, as it turns out. And she's just wonderful. Well, first, I would imagine it's got to be a tremendous shock for anyone to receive this type of diagnosis. But you're an athlete. You were a world-class athlete. What was going through your mind? I mean, how did you deal with this news? It's funny you bring up Keegan because I do know Keegan and we've spoken together about this and the rather crappy experience that it is. For me, it was difficult like every other woman who has to go through this and it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's very disrupting. It's very jarring. It's scary. It's particularly scary to the family and for the kids. But I think as an athlete, there's this dimension that we think our bodies are infallible. And, you know, I'm 53 and I still unfortunately play sports a bit like I'm in my 20s, which means (laughs) I get beat up quite a bit. But you just never think that something like this could happen because we spend so much of our time taking care of our bodies. And Mm -hmm. as you spoke about Djokovic earlier, eating the right food and exercising every day and sleeping and being outdoors. So for something like this to happen is very jarring to the framework that we have sort of set for ourselves. It is a reality and you have to move through it. And so the flip side is that as an athlete, I've certainly had plenty of injuries. I've broken both my legs and banged up my knees, is that you know how to go through injuries. And so you know how to go through cancer and you figure out ways to just put your head down. And the doctor says, you got to be there every day for treatment. You go every day and learning how to do that. Now, I'm not particularly good always at easing up And so for me, when I first had my surgery, you know, the doctor said, don't do anything for two weeks. Well, of course, I think I let that go for about five or six days. And then I tried to go for a run and then my stitches got infected. And so I made more of a mess of it than it needed to be. Classic athlete mistake. But anyway, that push and strive to want to get better fast was, I think, what got me through it. And I think Keegan said something similar when we talked about this year. If you apply that mindset that is ingrained in you, it actually could be very helpful in dealing with an incredible difficult thing to deal with. How are you feeling today? I feel great. It's a couple of years behind me. I take tamoxifen every day and I feel great. So I go get checked up every couple of months, every six months. But for now, I feel great. Yeah. Excellent. This is an audio podcast. People can't see you, but I'm looking at you. You look very healthy. <laughs> Thank you, you look like you're ready to go out for a run. So I was at HP at the time. And there are a couple of things that were interesting from a kind of work perspective. One is the people at HP were really phenomenal. You know, I think when something like this happens, particularly companies like HP that are very professional and there's a lot of respect for the employees, they just said, you do whatever you need to do. We're here. We got you covered. We got your back, whatever it takes. And I think that workplaces should be that way. I don't know that they all are, but I'm forever grateful and appreciative to HP for doing that. But the other thing is for me as a leader, I remember one time I came in and we had a meeting and it was a little bit dysfunctional and the team was not really gelling and not connecting. And so I had realized that people were connecting really on the surface. Even in sports, if you really want to connect, you got to go a little bit deeper to connect with people. You can't just connect on the surface. And so the whole team, they didn't know that I was going through treatment at the time. And so I hate to say it, but I kind of used it as a way to expose my own vulnerabilities in what was going on at the time. And in doing that, it brought everyone else's defenses down. And then others opened up a little bit about what they were doing, what was going on in their life. And it brought us together on a deeper level than we otherwise would have been and really helped to gel the team where we then were able to perform at a much higher standard because we were connected, we were all there together. And for me, it was just a really interesting learning moment for myself. These things that we go through that a lot of times we want to hide and keep away from others, by actually exposing them, we bring others into our world and they are there for us. And that's both on a personal level, but for sure on a professional level as well. Many people are afraid, of course, to demonstrate vulnerability in any part of life but certainly in a professional part of life. My sense is that you need to demonstrate a significant competence and even power, not power in a hierarchical way, but power that you're capable of doing amazing things. If you do that and can still be yourself and be willing to be vulnerable on occasion, it is a powerful combination because 
one could imagine someone who is too far either of those two sides, which is very sharing, very vulnerable, but doesn't seem like they can get to the finish line. That's not going to work. And then the opposite, which is probably by far and away the most typical thing, right? People often don't share a lot about their personal lives or the things they're going through. We're working with people. We're working with other human beings. People can relate to that. So it takes a little bit of courage, but I think that combination is very, very powerful and very real. My experience is if you want to get the best out of others, you have to bring your best and truest self to the table. And that means all parts of ourselves. So if you want it from them, you got to do it yourself. So Anouk, I have a question I like to ask towards the end of my conversations about advice. You have been asked about advice, no doubt before, but this is advice a little bit different because it's advice to yourself when you were 20 years old, give or take. If you could magically go back in time and cozy on up next to the 20-year-old Anuk who was wherever she was at that time doing whatever she was doing, and you were going to lean over and say, there's one thing you want to know, and there's one thing I've learned over life that I know I didn't know when I was 20. There's one thing I want to share about to do, not to do, to think about. What would that be, the advice to yourself at the age of 20? I think I would say, which is what I still say to myself at 53, because I don't think it's any different, is just keep doing what makes you happy. Finding the things that you get satisfaction with, that make you feel good, that give you happiness is really what you should be doing, not solving for success or money or achievement. But the more you are able to do things that bring you happiness, the better you'll be at them. Those other things will naturally come. But if you're able to really find in yourself the things that make you happy and do those things, then I think you'll be far better off. For me, it's continuing to play sports every day. It's being curious about the way the world works and meeting interesting people. Those are the things that make me happy. I try to do them every day. It's the things that I get the most satisfaction from. And I would tell all 19 and 21-year-olds to do the same. And 53-year-olds as well, it sounds like. Exactly. And this could change over time because we grow and we change, obviously, over time. But if each of us write down the three things that make us really happy at any point in life and then say, okay, every day, let's do something that moves the needle a little bit on that. Wouldn't that be a nice little life hack to move forward? It is. And for me, I run every day. I like to get outside every day. I make sure that even if I have to get up at five in the morning to go do it, I will go do it because I know if I don't, other people really don't want to be around me. So (laughs) I think the difference between me at 53 and me at 20 is now I know really clearly what makes me happy every day. At 20, maybe I thought I did, but I wasn't sure. I thought I should be doing other things. But just have the conviction that the things that you want to do that make you happy are the right things to do. And you should make time for them every day. Anouk, thank you so much. That's a great way to wrap up our conversation. That is very inspiring and very practical at the same time. My favorite type of advice. Thanks so much for being on the SIDCast, sharing your story, being open about your story. Lots of lessons and just really interesting. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please consider giving us a five-star review, and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.